Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. As you know, I am a fan of mysteries. I'm willing to bet that you are too. For a couple of decades, the United States of America seemed to be lousy with serial killers. Or, at least, that's what shows like America's most wanted and unsolved mysteries would have you believe. Someone recently forwarded me an interview with Jeffrey Dahmer by Nancy Glass in 1993 for an episode of Inside Edition hosted by Bill O'Reilly. The interview is fascinating and horrifying, but presented in a rather boring fashion the way all American news was prior to shows like Inside Edition and Hard Copy polluting factual news stories with sensationalizing opinion. Somehow, that matter-of-fact interview between Nancy Glass and Jeffrey Dahmer makes it even more eerie. While conversing with the person that sent the video, it was brought to my attention that there was a series of unsolved murders way back in 1884 and 1885 in Austin, Texas. They were known as the Servant Girl Murders. Sixteen people were injured, eight of which died from the attacks. Although one man was killed and other men injured, the attacks seemed to target women. They would be attacked in their beds while asleep at night, sometimes dragged outside to be finished off. Historical reports, with frustrating lack of specificity, state that six of the victims had a sharp object pushed into their ears. During any of the attacks, there were no reports that dogs on property or belonging to neighbors were ever alarmed during the murders. The consensus seemed to be that a single killer was to blame for all of them, but others argued that a single human couldn't be capable of such brutality. 
The last two victims were the first white victims, and following their death, the Austin authorities utilized a tremendous amount of resources into stopping the murders and bringing the killer to justice. Perhaps spooked by the scrutiny, the killer stopped, perhaps fleeing the Austin area entirely, or maybe the country. That was 1885. In 1888, three years later, a series of killings began in Whitechapel, England. A suspect in the Jack the Ripper case, described as a Malay cook, may have been the same Malay cook who was employed by the Pearl Hotel in Austin, Texas, who left employment shortly after the final killings in the Servant Girl killings. Or, perhaps not. This is a mystery likely lost to time. Let's hear a couple of stories, children of the night. Chris Riley lives near Sacramento, California, vowing one day to move back to the Pacific Northwest. In the meantime, he teaches special education, writes cool stories, and hides from the blasting heat for six months of the year. He has had dozens of short stories published in various magazines and anthologies and across various genres. His debut novel, one of literary suspense titled The Sinking of the Angie Piper, has recently been published. For more information, go to chrisreillyauthor.com. Listen with me to Christian Riley's White Noise, which appeared originally in Phobos magazine, issue number three. It's the sound of the future. Molly's voice is deep as a canyon, wet as rain. Adam looks up from the vintage record cover in his lap and stares at his wife. He reaches for his beer on the end table, takes a swig, and then blinks several times. Molly stares back, her eyes twitching like insect legs. The sound of the future, I'm telling you. She motions to the record with her head before lighting a cigarette. That's why you're listening to that crap. Perhaps, Adam thinks, one year ago he would not have given classical music five minutes of his time. Adam had been a metalhead through and through. He liked his music loud as hell and fast as whiskey. But now Adam knows by heart every Mozart composition he's been able to get his hands on. In his head, he can recount works from Bach, Chopin, Brahms, and Tchaikovsky and he whistles the fourth movement of Beethoven's Ninth every morning on his way to work. Oddly, he only needs to hear a composition once before he has it ingrained into his mind. It makes sense, he thinks again, rising from the depths of a lazy boy chair. It was a year ago when the earth started to make noises, wasn't it? The first earthly clamor occurred when Adam was in the garage, changing the oil in his truck. The noise came as a sudden popping sound, sporadic yet continuous, like popcorn in a microwave, 
only with steel kernels perhaps the size of cars, bursting in the distant horizon. And that horizon spanned the entire globe. For three hours, the whole world had heard it, and for three hours, the whole world went mental. You're going to put that on, aren't you? Molly asks. She clenches her teeth, frowning. A stretch of silence passes as Molly gives Adam a sidelong glance before taking a long drag on her cigarette. That stuff gives me a headache, you know that? Don't worry, Adam replies. I won't play it too loud. Just enough to... Well, you know. You know, meaning just enough to cover up the sound of the future, as Molly calls it. The sound has other names, most of which are a jumble of scientific words. Adam's favorite is SIP, for Seismic Interference Phenomenon, only because of that last word. The SIPs have yet to receive any scientific explanation. They are a true phenomenon, just like Adam's sudden perfect pitch and preference for classical music, or the world's odd complacency to their global mystery, or even that peculiar activity his wife does each night before bed. I'd say she's becoming a little melodramatic, Adam thinks, as he sets the record onto the turntable. In a huff, Molly gets up from the couch and staggers toward the kitchen. She leaves ribbons of smoke in her wake, yellowish-gray like her hair. With a nail, she picks at a scab on her face, one of many riddling her body for nigh on a year now. Where are you going? Adam asks, fumbling with the turntable's tone arm. Oh, you know. Adam does know, and he wonders just how far his wife will take it this evening. An odd feeling rushes through his gut as he watches his wife enter the kitchen. A part of him wonders if he shouldn't be more concerned about her. Perhaps he should engage her in a different activity, maybe take her shopping, or out to a restaurant. But the thought is fragile, like the shell of a hollowed-out egg, and it cracks as soon as he hears Wagner's first notes from the ride of the Valkyries. The second sip occurred four days after the first. Adam and Molly were high as kites that night, laughing like children, grilling steaks in the backyard when the sound came. It started out as a heavy clomping noise far in the distance. It's always in the distance. The clomping was like a horse crossing a thin sheet of glass. A shattering prediction was immediate to Adam's ear, but it never happened, and that had left him feeling incomplete unresolved, even as the sound grew heavier, as if the glass had thickened, turned to ice, even as the clomping combined with what sounded like curtains of steel, twisting and shredding, and even as the sip faded and eventually died out. Adam remembers that amidst their panic, while he and Molly held each other tightly. He couldn't stop thinking about that missing shatter. Hours later, he broke a glass on the kitchen floor, but somehow the sound just wasn't right. I don't see why you can't wear headphones, Molly says. In the kitchen she turns, hands on her hips, cigarette resting loose under a frown. Adam shrugs in reply. I told you, I don't like them things in my ears. Besides, it sounds better when the music overpowers everything else, like it's winning a battle or something. 
Molly makes a face. You're fucking strange, you know that? She sets her cigarette onto the kitchen counter and peels off her clothes, kicking the garments to the side. Red and black scabs cover her naked body, and there are bands of wet pus wiped across her legs like fresh snail tracks. Strange, she repeats. Adam shrugs in reply. By the tenth sip, nobody cared anymore. This particular sip lasted for three days and had a predominant sound that was reminiscent of heavy steel gears grinding through sand and rubble. Serving as resonance was something like wind blowing through enormous glass tubes. The volume of the sip fluctuated, as did the timber, but the tempo remained a constant for three days. Soon it became white noise, as if the world had stopped waiting for the second shoe to drop, and simply tuned the sip out. It was then that Adam noticed Molly's recent penchant for the burning of flesh. The Valkyries now in full ride, Adam sits back in his chair and observes his wife, curious. The cigarette is in her mouth once again, her lips squeezing down on it like a vice. Her face is a mask of concentrated distress. She's at the stove with a steak knife, holding it over a blue flame, and slowly the steel turns red. This is her nightly routine, but lately she's been getting a little rough with herself, as if she's a drug addict, incomplete, unresolved, each fix needing to be stronger than the last. I still can't believe you like that music, she mumbles from the side of her mouth, eyes fixed on the knife. What the hell happened to you? Adam doesn't say anything. He nurses his beer and continues to watch. He has a good view from his chair, but most of his attention is now with Wagner. In the far distance, he catches another sip, a klaxon of hollowed steel hammered with pipe, or so it sounds. He sees Molly raise the blade and press it against her left breast. She opens her mouth. The cigarette drops to the floor and her body spasms against the stove. I really should take her shopping or something, he thinks, then drains his beer and watches as the knife now cuts deep into flesh, past tissue and bone, carving through organs, making sounds of its own. A crescendo of the cello takes over, and the sip, along with Molly's actions with the knife, the wet collapse of her body onto linoleum, the subdued gurgle from her throat, all turn into white noise, and with a pensive smile, Adam slowly closes his eyes. That was Christian Riley's White Noise, as read by Tales to Terrify's own Scott Silk. Scott Silk spends long days staring into the dark heart of corporations and is forbidden to speak about what he sees there. In his spare time, his interests include reading, writing, urban gardening, tattoos, cartoons, seeing how long he can let his hair grow, and not wearing pants. 
Originally from rural western Pennsylvania, he now lives in Brooklyn with his girlfriend, two cats, and a collection of houseplants. He can sometimes be found babbling about speculative fiction and his other interests on Twitter, at ScottSilk13. Thank you, Scott. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We will now hear from Evan Dicken, who we heard way back in episode 290 with his terrific story, The Fittest, as read by Seth Williams. By day, Evan Dickens studies old Japanese maps and crunches data for all manner of fascinating medical experiments at the Ohio State University. By night, he does neither of these things. His horror fiction has appeared in publications such as Shock Totem, Pseudopod, and Dark Fuse magazine. He has stories forthcoming from publishers such as Chaosium and Apex magazine, feel free to visit him at www.evandicken.com, where he wastes both his time and yours. Children of the Night, listen with me to Evan Dickens' Destroyer of Worlds, originally appearing in Stupefying Stories, August 2016. November 8th, 1942. Oppenheimer found the ghoul feasting on the Nazi dead at El Alamein. He had tracked the beast for weeks, tracing weathered paths of rumor and superstition through the embattled Egyptian countryside, until he had found himself on the very front lines of the conflict. There were yet jackals among the bodies. They looked up as Oppenheimer slowed to a stop, their eyes flashing yellow in the jeep's headlights, their muzzles wet with gore. The sight brought a smile to Oppenheimer's face. It wasn't too late. 
A deal, is it here? Oppenheimer shook a cigarette from his crumpled pack and lit it from the stub of his previous one. His Egyptian translator nodded, lips pressed in a thin line, hand trembling as he gestured at the jackals. The American physicist stalked into the carnage, the red-orange glow of his cigarette bobbing before him like a demon will-o'-wisp. The jackals ignored his approach, intent on their feast, or perhaps grown indifferent to men. Oppenheimer crouched as he drew near the beasts, motioning a deal to the ground. He fished a leather-bound book from his satchel and thumbed through the crackling pages. Oppenheimer closed his eyes and took a long drag of his cigarette. The smoke tingled and burned, curling through his lungs to spew forth in a series of low, rasping coughs. Breath rattled in his throat, but his hands were steady. He threw his arms wide and stood, highlighted against the false dawn, like an eldritch scarecrow meant to scatter the ghosts of the dead. The American began to speak, soft syllables that grew in tempo and volume, until they became a chattering torrent of exhortation. The language was unmistakably foreign, yet somehow familiar. The words recognizable in the same way as the features of ancestors are to their descendants. All but one of the jackals scattered, their snarling yips fading as they fled into the night. The last beast stood transfixed, eyes wide, black lips pulled back from yellowed fangs, dark red tongue lolling in its open mouth. Oppenheimer extended one hand to the jackal, palm out, and his chant took on a tone of command. The jackal began to shake and snap at the air, letting vent a long howl, ending in an almost human scream. Its bones grew and warped. Flesh and fur writhed into obscene shapes as the creature pushed itself upright. Long clawed fingers clutched at the night, as if they could gather the darkness like a shroud. The jackal fell to the ground, convulsing, its grub-pale flesh strangely luminous in the gloom. Oppenheimer's chant trickled to a stop. The thing that rose from amidst the corpses was an abomination, hunched and twisted. A spray of tangled black hair framed its cruel features. Its mouth was a red slash between protruding jaws meant for gulping and tearing. Sunken yellow eyes glared from beneath heavy brows, glittering with hunger and hate. Words forced themselves from the thing's mouth, a guttural miasma of butchered sound that hung in the air like mustard gas. It took a moment for Oppenheimer to recognize the rasping speech as a corrupted form of Arabic. A deal! A deal! Oppenheimer's hiss propelled the wiry Egyptian translator to his feet. What did he say? 
Adil clutched his hands to his chest in a supplicant's pose, warding off his fear with whispered prayer. The ghoul wished to know why you reveal it. Oppenheimer took a long drag on his cigarette. The smoke tingled and burned, curling through his lungs, calming him. Tell it I require the location of Suleiman's vault. Adil translated the scientist's words into Arabic. The ghoul snarled something, cracked lips peeling back from a double row of jagged fangs. It says it will feast upon our flesh, Adil moaned. It is the one who should fear death. Oppenheimer drew forth a curved silver knife. He brandished it at the beast with more confidence than he felt. You recognize this, don't you? How many of your kind did Arnufus slay with this blade? The ghoul fell to its knees, prostrating itself in hideous caricature of worship. It scrabbled at the bloody ground and moaned acquiescence in a voice like shattered glass. He spoke a few arcane words, keeping the dagger between him and the beast. Free from the mystical bonds, the ghoul folded in on itself, body shriveling and twisting until it was a jackal once more. It spun and trotted off into the night. Oppenheimer sprinted back to the jeep, clothes flapping in the breeze. He shouted for a deal, but the wiry Egyptians answering prayers were not addressed to any human agency. When he called again, Adil made a warding gesture in Oppenheimer's direction and backed away with hands raised. Oppenheimer drove off into the night, headlights jittering as the jeep's tires bounced over scattered bodies. He followed the ghoul until the hard pan gave way to backed sand. The sun rose, bloody, its angry glow staring the desert sky, a dull red, even as it boiled away the evening chill. Finally, the creature stopped and lifted its paw to indicate a rocky outcrop some hundred meters distant. The sand was too thick for the jeep, so they continued on foot. As he picked through the rocks, it became apparent the outcrop was no natural phenomenon. Giant sandstone blocks, cracked and scoured by the desert wind, lay in a half-buried jumble. The architecture was a riot of styles. Shattered towers dotted the outer ruins. The familiar onion domes of Ottoman architecture giving way to toppled Amorovid minarets and sassanid arches. The ghoul led him through a gallery of worn columns that wouldn't have been out of place in the Valley of Kings, and down a flight of stairs into a plaza built in a style the American did not recognize. It was there he found the door. The heavy stone slab bore carvings in a hundred languages. A riot of Arabic, Greek, Hebrew, and Latin interspersed with Egyptian pictographs, Sanskrit, cuneiform, and even older tongues, all repeating the same warning. 
They warned away those lusting for power, for fortune, for fame. But Oppenheimer ignored them. He did this not for himself, but for the world. Deed before creed. Manly, Cerber, Robbie. They'd laughed at him when he left the Manhattan Project. Fools still hoping to wring victory from the atom. Oppenheimer saw that it wasn't possible, that their research would never yield the weapon they wanted. He had turned to other avenues while they continued their fruitless inquiry. Now they would see he'd been right all along. The ghoul cocked its head at the American scholar as he laid his hands upon the stone. He didn't need to reference the book for this incantation. It had been burned into his memory over a thousand sleepless nights. It and the promise it brought had carried him through all the ridicule, the questions, the challenges. The words came as they had back in Berkeley, back in Chicago. They came as a prayer, recited so often they had lost all meaning. Oppenheimer would not have even known he was speaking, save for the dull rumble of the door. With a boom like thunder, the stone shattered, filling the air with the dust of ages. The ghoul gave a startled shriek and fled back into the ruins. Oppenheimer let it go. With a deep breath, he stepped into the chamber beyond. The room was dark and cold, daylight seeming to recoil from its shadowed recesses. It was smaller than he expected, perhaps twenty meters square, carved straight from the bedrock. Oppenheimer wrinkled his nose. The weight of years had soured and thickened the air, and it slipped across his skin with a touch that was almost oily. A puddle of congealed darkness crept along the far wall, a shadow with no maker. It looked upon Oppenheimer with eyes of smokeless flame, eyes that had seen nothing but night for millennia. It had many names. Ifrit, Jin, Shaitan, Galu, Genie. It was the last of its kind, and it was going to win this war for the Allies. You have shattered the vault. Speak, man, and ask of me your services, so I may be free of this world. Its words were creeping dread, conjured from blackness, and spoken with the voices of the dead. The book promised three wishes. Service. The Efreet glided forward, coal-black skin glistening in the half-light, its every move singing of fear and death. I am not omnipotent, nor am I your slave. I cannot create, but I can destroy. I can lay the works of man to ruin and write your name in fire so bright that future generations will scream it in their sleep. Oppenheimer drew back as unconscious dread prickled his skin. 
This was the test, what the door had warned of, the temptation to use the creature for personal gain. Oppenheimer lit another cigarette and drew the stinging smoke deep into his chest. This was the test, and he would pass it. Afrit, you will come back to America with me to be presented to the President and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. They will determine how you are to be employed in the service of the American people. So be it. The Afrit gave a crocodile smile. I will accompany you to your home, but know this, O oh man. It was you who freed me. It is you alone to whom I am beholden, and it is to you alone I will speak. Oppenheimer swallowed his trepidation. He was doing the right thing. The Ifrit closed its eyes, its form wavering like a desert mirage before fading from view. Only its voice remained, whispering in Oppenheimer's thoughts. I await your command. August 23rd, 1944 Dr. Oppenheimer, genies don't exist. Senator Blackburn blotted at his expansive forehead with a light green handkerchief. Oppenheimer stood, wincing at the pain in his knees. Summer humidity and the stress of the last year had combined to conjure a terrible ache in his joints. As I said before, gentlemen, they do exist. Well, they did exist. Most left the world once their services were complete, but one remained, sealed away for all time. And you found it? Blackburn sighed. They'd been over this before. Yes. And brought it here. Yes. Then why can't we see it? Yanni only appear to those to whom they are bound. They're invisible. All of the literature supports this. The word jinn itself is derived from the Arabic root verb jinnin, meaning to hide or conceal. Even the Quran states, Dr. Oppenheimer, this committee isn't interested in etymology or theology. We deal in facts, solid, quantifiable facts, and you have yet to show us any. Dr. John Manley's exasperated voice crackled through the room's tinny speakers. A physicist like Oppenheimer, Manley advised the project committee in matters of weapon research. Say the word, and I will scour the disbelief from these fools. The djinn's voice was thick with cruel promise, oozing like partially clotted blood through Oppenheimer's thoughts. I've told you before, the ifrit won't manifest unless I command it to. Oppenheimer took a nervous sip of water. It was tepid and tasted of ash, as had everything since he'd freed the djinn. I won't waste a command that could potentially spare millions of lives just to satisfy this committee's curiosity. Spoken like a true liberal. General Dawson leaned into his microphone as he spoke, his accusations booming like artillery salvos. 
Dawson was the third voice of opposition on the committee, but where Blackburn questioned his story and Manley questioned his arguments, the general questioned Oppenheimer himself. There is still the matter of your communist sympathies, doctor. Russia is our ally, and what's more, I am not, nor have I ever been, a member of the Communist Party. Oppenheimer's rebuttal sounded weak after Dawson's loud allegations. Damn, he needed a cigarette. An ally of convenience. Don't you think for a moment we've forgotten the Drakazerbund or the Great Purge? Do you deny that you solicited funds for the Republican cause during the Spanish Civil War? I did it to oppose fascism, not support communism. Dawson snorted, eyes hard and dark in his heavily lined face. Huh, do you deny that your close friends and family are all active members of the Communist Party? Your wife Catherine? Your brother Frank? Your students at Berkeley? Even your cleaning lady. With each name, Dawson drew a manila folder from his briefcase and slapped it down on the table. Do you deny that before you left the Manhattan Project, you described yourself as, and I quote, a member of every communist front organization on the West Coast? Oppenheimer's knees felt weak. His breath came in whistling gasps. Knowing what was coming, he held up a hand to forestall Dawson. But the general didn't relent. Do you deny that before her suicide, your former mistress, Jean Tatlock, was a writer for Western Worker, a known communist publication? Oppenheimer collapsed into his chair, hands patting the front of his suit in search of the crumpled pack in his breast pocket. The committee watched without expression as Oppenheimer lit a cigarette with the quiet desperation of a man going to the gallows. Jean. Her face swam up through his thoughts. She was crying, mascara bleeding from her eyes, her lips red and puffy. When she spoke, it was with the voice of the djinn. On the night I killed myself, I tried to call you. You were sitting in front of this committee. They stopped you then, and they're stopping you now. Why do you let them? I should have been there. Answer the question, Doctor. Do you deny? That's enough, John. Dr. Oppenheimer isn't on trial here. Brigadier General Leslie Groves stood to address the committee. The support was unexpected. Oppenheimer and Groves had worked together briefly on the Manhattan Project, but they'd never been friends. Whatever his sympathies may be, he's a valuable asset to this country. He's a danger to this country, Dawson said. Senator Blackburn scribbled a few notes on his legal pad. Enough. General Groves is correct. We are here to determine the validity of Dr. Oppenheimer's claim, not plumb the minutia of his personal life. Doctor, you have come before this committee six times in the last year, claiming that you have a super weapon. However, you cannot show it to us, and you refuse to demonstrate its capabilities. 
With all due respect, Senator, a single demonstration may mean the difference between victory and defeat. I can only use it three times. I've presented the committee with theological, historical, and even geological evidence. Surely it is enough to at least warrant preliminary deployment. I don't care how valuable Groves thinks you are. I'm not going to waste men's lives pandering to your delusion, Dawson said. General Dawson is right, Robert. Dr. Manley ran his fingers through sweat-slicked blonde hair. You have to understand how implausible this all sounds. Senator Blackburn nodded. I've heard enough. Dr. Oppenheimer, you have failed to present sufficient evidence to satisfy this committee. I'm afraid we're going to have to rule against providing you access to the United States military. Senator, if you would just... This matter is closed. Meeting adjourned. Blackburn's gavel fell like a headsman's axe. It was over. Two years of testimony, answering questions about his past, his political beliefs, his sanity. Oppenheimer had freed the djinn to save lives, to make a difference. But the war ground on while he struggled in a web of bureaucratic red tape. All for nothing. Oppenheimer's heart hammered in his ears. His tie was too tight. Sweat prickled along his back and arms, but he was so cold. Faces swirled around him as he slumped to the ground, a swirling kaleidoscope of muted sound and color. Someone slapped him, but he barely felt it. Oppenheimer's vision narrowed to a pinprick of light, one tiny star adrift in an ocean of night. It winked out, and he was alone. No, not alone. Something was in here with him. It didn't speak, didn't move, but he knew it was there, waiting. April 2nd, 1945. The hospital room was bright and cold. Buzzing artificial light illuminated the smoke-stained walls. The air was thick with the stench of antiseptic a stagnant cloud of faux sterility that barely masked undertones of corruption and excrement. You have to understand, Robert. The boys in Washington have a hard time believing you can do what you say. Brigadier General Leslie Groves rocked forward in his chair, tanned hands steepled in front of his face. Oppenheimer grimaced at the general's comment. No matter how much he pleaded, the Efreet wouldn't reveal itself. It still spoke to him, though, taunts and lies. When he responded, it appeared to others as if Oppenheimer was talking to thin air. He couldn't blame them for thinking him mad. Grove sighed. Manley and Cerber are getting promising results from their experiments with heavy water. They could use a physicist of your caliber. Oppenheimer squeezed his eyes shut. So this was the reason Groves had come to visit him. Not to hear his arguments, but to try and convince him to rejoin a doomed project. Germany was on the brink of surrender, but the Japanese hung on 
Every tiny Pacific island watered with the blood of brave young men and women. It wasn't too late. Not yet. He must do something. He had to take the Ifrit's power into his own hands. They'd given him no other choice. Oppenheimer rose up on his elbows, metal bed creaking as he moved. Set up a test site for me. Somewhere far away from people. I'll need bunkers and observation gear. The general scratched his mustache. I've been given wide discretion with regards to research and development. If you would consent to come back to the Manhattan Project, I'd be able to. You're going to need a proving ground at some point in the future anyway. I promise it will be worth the time and expense. If it isn't, I'll rejoin the project without complaint. That got Grove's attention. Let me make some calls. May 7th, 1945. Dry wind blew across the New Mexico hard pan, the warm Sirocco whispering promises of another stifling summer to come. Oppenheimer inhaled. He'd always loved the desert. Dry leaves and sticks crackled in his lungs as the indrawn breath dissolved into racking coughs. Grove slapped him on the back, the general's heavy, well-meaning hand jarring Oppenheimer forward. He braced himself on the lip of the bunker window and scanned the crowd. Manly, Cerber, Rabbi, and a dozen other scientists mingled with an equal number of military and political observers. All come to see if the mad physicist could actually back up his claims. The Efreet was there, too. It was always there, watching, waiting. They have come to witness your power. Not mine. Not mine, Oppenheimer whispered under his breath. The Efreet was baiting him, trying to provoke an angry retort that would further cement his reputation as a madman. Two years with the creature had made him wise to most of the djinn's tricks. Most of them. What was that? General Groves leaned in, the air around him heavy with the smell of boot polish and old spice. Nothing. I'm... I'm ready. Oppenheimer turned back to the view, hiding his pained expression. Groves nodded to one of his aides, who announced that everyone should don their blast goggles. Oppenheimer ran a hand through his thinning hair. Jin, I have your first task. He pointed to the distant marker. Give these doubters a taste of destruction. Show them now. Oppenheimer held his breath, unsure as to what would happen. All were silent as the seconds ticked by. A cough came from the back of the bunker. Oppenheimer flushed. What if the Efreet really was just a figment of his imagination? The radiance of a thousand suns lit the horizon, so bright that even with the goggles, Oppenheimer had to shield his eyes. A silent maelstrom of fire and light scoured the ground, leaving nothing but smoking glass in its wake. 
The sound followed seconds behind the explosion. A terrible boom that rattled bone within flesh and set teeth chattering. There was another noise as well. A staccato rumbling, barely audible amidst the thunderous roar. The tone was familiar, but Oppenheimer couldn't place it. Blood filled his mouth, and he realized he had bitten his cheek. The dark cloud grew, reaching towards the sky, a gallows tree spreading branches of ash and smoke. The bunker was silent. No one moved. No one breathed. It worked! Oppenheimer felt vindication, but also fear. What had he unleashed? I have done as you wished, the Efreet whispered. By your command, the world trembles and falls silent. The terrified calm dissolved as scientists, officers, and politicians filled the air with shouted questions. Groves was already on the phone, yelling to be heard over the ride of voices. Oppenheimer couldn't make out Groves' words, but the general's wide eyes showed terror and awe in equal measure. Oppenheimer sank back into one of the leather chairs, letting the noise over him. Individual questions and comments blended into incoherent babble. Only one voice remained clear. A low hiss that cut through the din like a whip crack. You have become death, destroyer of worlds. August 6th, 1945 I can bring them back, you know. Your mother? Your father? Jean? The Efreet spoke with the voice of Oppenheimer's son, Peter's four-year-old's lisp belying the dark nature of the creature's words. You lie. Oppenheimer hissed, thankful that the rumble of the B-29's engines hid his whisper from the rest of the airmen. The crew of the recently renamed Enola Gay already regarded him with distrust. He couldn't blame them. The demonstration at Los Alamos had only provoked more questions and accusations, this time tinged with fear rather than skepticism. They had kept him in detention kept him from his family and friends. Although he told them everything, they wanted more. The last months had reduced Oppenheimer, always thin, to skeletal proportions. It hurt to move, and the fits of coughing came more frequently. We're coming up on the drop zone, Colonel Paul Tibbet's voice echoed through the crackling speaker. Oppenheimer shifted his gaze to the bomber's instruments. The lights of the doomed city glimmered like fireflies in the early dawn. He had helped pick the target. Hiroshima, one of the larger cities on the southern end of the Japanese archipelago. Hiroshima spared the worst of the American firebombing. Hiroshima, home to thousands of people. Until today. He had hoped to direct the djinn from America until it had informed him that he needed to be there to give the command and witness the results. 
Oppenheimer didn't regret what he had to do. He was saving American and Japanese lives. Saving them. The casualty reports from the Battle of Okinawa were still coming in. Tens of thousands of soldiers dead on both sides, and almost a hundred thousand civilian victims estimated. Oppenheimer shuddered to think of the cost America would pay for the larger islands. If only the Japanese had listened to Truman's Potsdam ultimatum. If only their leaders weren't so proud, so stubborn. I have stood by many who made the same argument. In the end, it is all the same. Shut up! The outburst startled the bombardier, who met Oppenheimer's eyes for a moment before recoiling from the scientist's fever-bright gaze. The light on the board went from red to green. Oppenheimer shambled past the other consoles, manned by observers waiting to measure the power of the blast. The bombardier shifted from his seat. There was nothing for him to do. The bomber had no payload but Oppenheimer. They were over the city, a vast web of streets and homes stretching out around the quiet bay. Oppenheimer frowned. It was easy to accept responsibility when you were one of many, but this slaughter came by his hand alone. He exhaled, breath rasping from congested lungs. <sighs> Jin, I set to you your second task. Destroy this city. It shall be done. Hiroshima was gone. Reduced to cinders in a rolling conflagration of white-hot flame. People in buildings were scrubbed from the earth in the span of a few heartbeats. A whole city full of lives ended in a roiling cloud of black destruction. Oppenheimer turned away from the view, but couldn't escape the sound. The rumble rose above the buffeting of air on the bomber's hull rattling instruments, and jerking men against their harnesses. Again, Oppenheimer heard another noise, carried along with the shockwave, like chaff on the wind. It was clearer this time, but still just beyond understanding. He leaned forward, trying to differentiate the sound from the thrum of the distant explosion. Unbelievable! The bombardier spoke in Oppenheimer's ear, shattering his concentration. No one man should have this much power. The scientist lifted his gaze from the floor. But you do, Daddy. You do. Peter's reedy sing-song echoed in Oppenheimer's mind. Tears came unbidden to his eyes. August 9th, 1945. Nothing had gone as planned. Oppenheimer awoke in such pain that he couldn't stand, racked with coughs that left his sheets and pillows stained with blood. The crew of the boxcar had to carry him to the bomber on a stretcher as he thrashed and cried out in strange tongues. 
The physicists' ravings conjured bizarre images in the thoughts of those who heard them, driving even nurses away. Oppenheimer heard the worried exchanges as if through a heavy blanket. The day came dark and overcast, a dense cover of clouds obscuring the Japanese coast, growing even heavier over Kokura, their primary target. One of their spotter planes had missed the rendezvous, and they were forced to fly partially blind. The boxcar would have turned back, but concern over Oppenheimer's failing health forced them on to their secondary target. The jinn spoke without cease, describing Nagasaki in such intricate detail that Oppenheimer felt like he was there. Although it is Thursday, Rakami Cathedral is full of people. They pray for the return of their sons, husbands, fathers. They pray for deliverance from evil. Elsewhere the markets have opened for the day. Porters and carts cross McGain Bridge. But for the occasional fearful glance at the sky, it could be any other day. Oppenheimer gritted his teeth. It would all be over soon. The view from Mount Inasa is breathtaking. Save for the sloped roofs of Buddhist temples and ageless Tory gates. In the morning mist, one could mistake Nagasaki for any coastal city. New York, Boston, San Francisco. They were over the target. It was as the jinn described. The people are relieved. They expected more bombers. But there are so few of you that they think you are only reconnaissance planes. Mothers sing their children back to sleep. Oppenheimer turned his head away, moaning a wordless entreaty for the djinn to stop. He was tired, so tired, but he drew strength from the fact that this was his last wish. They were mere miles from the center. In a few moments, it would all be over. The djinn would depart from this world and from Oppenheimer. It was the last of its kind, a relic from an age of terror and ignorance. Humanity would be better off without the temptation it represented. The words came as a sigh of relief. Ifrit, hear my final command. Destroy this city. Man, before we part ways, there is something I would have you know. The djinn used its own voice, the same with which it had first spoken to him in the vault of Suleiman. Mathematical calculations and theoretical variables resounded in the darkness of Oppenheimer's mind. The djinn wove a tapestry of proofs that started with what was known and expanded to push the barriers of science. My God, we're so close. Oppenheimer's mouth was dry. He had been wrong about the atom. All that was needed was for someone to show them what was possible. Someone like him. This has only just begun. 
and the gin was gone. Oppenheimer squeezed his eyes shut against the light, but couldn't close his ears to the thunderous boom that shook the plain. Scattered cheers echoed around the fuselage as tired soldiers witnessed what they believed to be an end to the war. The air crackled with sound, the concussive force of the explosion reverberating through the atmosphere. Only Oppenheimer recognized the voice within the cacophony, the same one he had heard at Los Alamos, at Hiroshima, the same one that had tortured his thoughts these last three years, echoing through the storm of destruction like a light motif of annihilation, was a single, crystal-clear refrain. Laughter. That was Evan Dickens' Destroyer of Worlds as read by Tales to Terrify's own Drew Sebastini. Writer and designer, editor and inventor, brewer and narrator, Drew's been called a lot of things in his career, some nicer than others. By day, he spins stories with words and pictures as an advertising copywriter and creative director. But by the light of the moon, he can be found weaving tales for sound and screen and alchemizing bubbly brews with hops and barley. He lives in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada. Discover more about Drew at www.idrewthis.ca. Link will be in the show notes. Thank you, Drew. That'll be our show for the evening, children of the night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below and like us wherever you found our podcast. Our show was produced by our editors, Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 license. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 